welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. This is the second in the Resisting Adolescence series. With experts in their field, I explore some of the issues of modern day adolescence, how we guide and lead tomorrow's adults, and how we deal with their distress. In this episode, I talk to Will Malone, MD, endocrinologist, director and clinical advisor to the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. As always, please subscribe and like this episode. There are other ways to show your support in the description. Okay, Will Malone, thank you very much. What's your official title? So I'm an endocrinologist. Uh, I would... I would say uh, uh, technically an adolescent and uh, adult uh, endocrinologist. I've been in practice for about 12 years um, in the uh, western part of the United States. Okay. Now, until I got involved in all of this stuff, I had no, I'd never heard of the word endocrinologist. So what do you do? So an endocrinologist is essentially an expert in hormones. So our uh, our primary job is to um, uh, figure out if someone's hormone levels are too high or too low and then essentially bring those back to normal that's the easiest way to describe what we do right okay so the importance of hormones i guess is is something that, that uh, you know quite a lot about and what the, the function of hormones and how they operate uh um i better <laughs> I'm going to try and talk in relatively layman terms to try and bring people along with us that perhaps don't know anything about this conversation. Um, so the reason I got in touch with you is recently Liz Truss made a statement um, and within that statement she used the words irreversible when it came to medical decisions that children were making. And one of the reasons I'm reaching out to professionals such as you is to try and help people understand what uh, the nature of uh, puberty blockers and, and these sorts of things that we're doing to children when they decide that they are going to transition. So on that uh, topic, what does adolescence do for the human body? Why is it important that we, that we have puberty? Yeah, so I mean, puberty, the best way to think of it is it's a transitional state from childhood to adulthood. Uh, There's a surge in uh, hormone levels uh, that correspond um, uh, and uh, initiate physical changes. Uh, And uh, these changes are um, impact essentially every every section of our body um, Mm -hmm. and brain. Uh, It's a period of rapid growth, uh, both uh, physically, uh, and I would say emotionally and intellectually. Uh, so it's essentially uh, uh, a, an extremely vital process uh, for uh, maturation of human beings. Um, you, you could argue it's, it's, in terms of the number of changes that occur in the sh- relatively short period of time of puberty, mm-hmm. uh, you could argue it's one of the most monumental events in a human being's life. Yeah. I read a professor recently said that um, actually the changes in brain function from naught to three is less than an adolescence. Yeah, I think this is something that is, uh, it's been studied, but probably not uh, well reported. 
Mm. And it's, it's being more studied because it is, it's fascinating. So uh, the, uh, the brain development that occurs and uh, specifically the impact of sex hormones on that brain development uh, is uh, uh, essentially you can't have normal brain development, neuronal development without the surge of sex hormones uh, that corresponds to your biological sex. Right. What sort of outcomes, what, what are the, what can happen if that doesn't happen then? What can happen to the brain without the sex hormones? Well, uh, so this, this is obviously a, this is an area of, of somewhat unknown and uh, there are animal models. So there's some speculation. The, the, The concern is essentially that the brain will not develop quote unquote normally. So, so what does that mean? Well, it, it won't have the capacity to do the things that it normally should do. Uh, in particular, uh, uh, most concerning would be intelligence, so IQ. Uh, mm-hmm. And the second would be um, emotional regulation. Uh, so, um, you know, not nearly enough is understood about the brain. Uh, but uh, what we do know is that the surge in sex hormones during puberty um, plus the age-appropriate interactions that pubertal adolescents have with each other essentially uh, forms the proper environment for uh, intellectual, social, physical, and emotional development. Right, okay. So we, I think it's, a, is it Professor Blackmore or Blakemore and she looked at adolescence globally and there's sort of certain things that happen in every culture to do with adolescence so that obviously suggests that it's a structural thing um I don't know why I'm talking as if I know anything but (laughs) but it just some of the stuff's common sense if we all have a similar experience or a, a similar transition spell um it's obviously it's obviously quite important so the the journey for um a child who is diagnosed with gender dysphoria and that's something i'm i'm quite uncomfortable with anyway as a broad it's such Mm -hmm. a broad diagnosis um when do we start disrupting uh puberty for that child Do, do you know the sort of average age in the united states or yeah, I think it's it's a range. I mean, if so, the uh, the endocrine society recommends blocking puberty at about Tanner stage two. Tanner is the the doctor who described the different stages of uh, puberty based on physical development. And uh, so Tanner stage two is is quite early. Uh, so that that could be as early as ten, nine or ten years old, depending upon the individual. So it's it's very early puberty is when the um, the endocrine society, which I personally believe based off of uh, no uh, uh, good data, uh, recommends blocking puberty. Okay. And how do they recognize, what, what are the measures of TANA stage two? What does that look like? It's a measure of basically secondary sexual characteristics. So it's the, the classic uh, developmental phases that um, males and females go through as they uh, develop uh, into typical males and females. So breast right. development, um, um, you know, um, hair under the armpit, uh, uh, etc. It's it's early, without question. It's these are young, these are young individuals. These are essentially still children. 
Right. So you talked about what puberty does, and then we talk about puberty blockers. Do puberty blockers block the entirety of puberty? Is it, is it just absolutely blocked everything? Yeah, it, it basically stops the hormonal signaling that would trigger. So it's kind of a two-step uh, or a, a two-part hormonal signal. Right. Uh, there's a signal from the brain that comes down to the testes or ovaries to signal them to release testosterone or estrogen, as well as additional hormones. So the puberty blockers basically stop that signaling so that the ovaries and testes do not release estrogen and testosterone respectively. And therefore the progression of, uh, and it may inhibit as well growth hormone, uh, that will stop the normal progression of uh, puberty. So the answer is yes, it will halt puberty completely. Right, okay. So if we take the case of say a uh, girl who thinks she's a boy and mm -hmm. she takes puberty blockers and often when I anecdotally when I hear these girls talk they talk about wanting to be six foot you know big strong men the likelihood of them achieving that must be even more uh must be even less because they're not going to go through puberty so do they remain tiny so that's a good question and I think it's one of the areas of of unknown here okay. so essentially trying to figure out what an individual's expected natural height would be and how these interventions impact that. And in addition, you know, for example, bone density. So we know that uh, girls who have their puberty blocked, um, the natural rapid increase in bone density that uh, would occur during puberty is completely halted. And at the end of uh, two years, those girls have bone densities that are essentially in the lowest 5%, uh, even 2.5% of uh, uh, when you compare them to uh, uh, girls their same age who have gone through puberty. So uh, yeah, the physical changes, um, um, some of them are known, but some, like you say, in terms of expected height outcome and mm. inhibition of that, that's, that's something that's unknown. And that's a recurring theme here is there is a lot that is unknown. This is not which is why uh, some have remarked that giving puberty blockers to children is essentially the equivalent of a live experiment. It's yeah. uh, meaning, uh, you know, in a scientific term, an experiment is when you apply an intervention when you don't know what the outcome will be. And so that's exactly what's occurring here. That really only should occur ever in the setting of controlled environments with uh, explicit consent from individuals. Um, experimental therapy where you don't know what's going to occur should never, those, ex, those experiments should not be run in the general population, which is what's occurring now. Yeah. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Because it, thus, so far during our conversation, uh, the things we know that actually happen are pretty awful and the rest, and the rest of it we don't know. Um, what's well, the well, upside? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, no, yeah, that's exactly the point. So, so the point is, we know that these interventions have risk. Uh, we can't say, for example, that puberty blockers are reversible because we, we don't know that those, those experiments, quote unquote, have not been done. Um, yeah. And, and the way medicine works is, is a lot based on risk. So if you give puberty blockers to 100 kids, uh, we don't know 
let's say the puberty blockers are then stopped. Uh, and this is normally timed puberty where these would be administered in, in the case of what we're discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know, for example, about fertility, whether what percentage of those children will have fertility preserved after the puberty blockers are stopped. And so the, the, the proper way this should be done is you would know, okay, if you put 100 children on puberty blockers starting at age 11, average age, uh, 75% will retain fertility or 80% or 90%. Yeah. We don't know what that number is. So, uh, so there's a tremendous amount of unknown. And then when we look at, okay, what are the reported or purported benefits of these interventions, um, they're very difficult to find. Right. So they're so they're being they're being sold as, uh, uh, in particular, uh, you know, life saving quote unquote that puberty blockers save lives by reducing uh, suicide risk, but that's never been medically proven in in any instance even close. Mm. So we have we have very enthusiastic statements and promises. Uh, 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 that and and many risks so these enthusiastic promises are, do not have uh, any evidence behind them right. nothing to substantiate them yet we have known uh, risks and so this is a very unusual situation in medicine um, in any other aspect in any other area of medicine uh, except under compassionate uh, you know sort of end of life uh, desperation situations uh, these this situation would would not occur. You would not be uh, providing treatments uh, that have no proven benefit yet known risks. Uh, and so that's why many of us are are alarmed and speaking out, and we're saying, why aren't the usual standards of ethical medical practice being applied to this area of medicine? Mm. Um, uh, it's applied in every other area of medicine. There are demands yeah. for rigorous, trials with control groups and and reanalysis of data and meta-analyses and uh, critique and et cetera, et cetera, and debate, et cetera. Uh, this is how science and medicine progress. But in this particular area of medicine, and we, we can theorize as to why that's occurring, right, in terms of suppression of debate and uh, 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 the uh, uh, kind of uh, other things going on that are preventing the normal, natural, uh, important scientific process from occurring. But it's medicine. It's not like it's, I mean, I can think of a million reasons why a school might teach a a particular curriculum that seems fashionable or well, any other place in the world, except for something which is fundamentally evidence-based and not just dealing with humans, but dealing with children that don't have the capacity to consent. So all of that just, it's just so deeply sinister. I don't know how it must feel working in the, in the field to watch. You must have colleagues that have, that have um, switched on to this or people that you've known. Yeah, so I would say, uh, you know, in my private conversations, the majority of endocrinologists feel the same way that I do. Uh, right. alarmed at the 
uh, widespread application of, of these interventions that don't have proven benefit uh, with known risk. Um, most are unwilling to speak out though because of uh, you know what happens when in the current climate, when you do speak out, uh, you're, you know, you're targeted and, um, but uh, certainly in private conversations, um, except for there's a minority of clinicians, a small number of clinicians, actually, when you look at the, um, uh, the global picture, who are um, almost fanatical in their uh, pursuit of these interventions. Um, and, and so that's kind of the the setting that we're mm. um, operating under. Yeah, I mean, anyone would think it was a good way to make money. Yeah, I mean, right? There's, there's uh, uh, the motivations for clinicians uh, to pursue interventions. It's really a fascinating topic, and there've been some books written about it. Um, there's a book uh, called "Great and Desperate Cures." Uh, speaking specifically about how, uh, you know, uh, psychosomatic treatments for um, psychic distress. So basically, you know, physical interventions for uh, psychological distress. And uh, the book talks about how physicians can be captured by the uh, allure of um, the pedestal and uh, being recognized as as pioneers and lauded and uh, uh, you know all of the positive feedback culturally that they get uh, basically causes them to uh, overplay and oversell benefit and underplay risk and so yeah. they lose their objective ability to speak rationally about a very important topic right i mean lupron has not has has had its fair share of scandals both in the u.s and uh across haiti i think it was where they seem to give out a lot of it so it, yeah it's it, so it's difficult to to parse out um the the side effect data with lupron because anytime the way at least in the united states the fda the way the fda works anytime there's a side effect in a person taking Lupron, it might be reported or could be reported, but that side effect might not be due to the Lupron itself. Right. So there's cert there are certainly some uh, red flags and some concerning signals there. Mm. So th and that's what the reporting system is for. It's to determine if there are things that need to be looked at more closely. And certainly those signals are there. So uh, without a doubt. Okay. So another thing that happened, so we, we've dealt a little bit with the, the blocking of the puberty and what it may or may not do. And, and that we know that there are negative side effects. And the worst thing is uh, that there's loads that we don't know, but we suspect. Um, the next thing that, that children do is cross-sex hormones. And if mm -hmm. I can specifically talk about girls mm -hmm, and the sure. impact of testosterone on yep. a female body and female brain, um, mm -hmm. Can you talk us through that? When would so in the United States? I think it's different from the UK, but in the United States, when are these girls taking it, and what impact does it have on their brain and bodies generally? Yeah, so it depends on the uh, it depends on the situation. So uh, if the if the parents if it's a minor uh, girl, she's a minor under age eighteen, the parents would have to consent usually to that intervention, and 
and to testosterone. Um, and that typically would occur a year or two after the initiation of puberty blockade. So if puberty blockade was initiated at 10 or 11 years old, testosterone would typically be initiated one or two years after that. And yeah, um, now what we've seen uh, here in the United States, and this has been a worldwide phenomenon, are um, adolescent females who have gone through significant portions of puberty, if not all the way through puberty, and now declare a transgender identity and um, are pursuing testosterone treatments. So uh, it depends if this is kind of a classic you know, adolescent or a, a childhood onset gender dysphoria, in which case right, the puberty okay. blockers would be initiated and then testosterone a couple years later versus what's been called rapid onset gender dysphoria or late onset gender dysphoria, um, where uh, most of these women have gone through, uh, these adolescent uh, uh, girls have gone through uh, a significant chunk of puberty, if not the entirety of puberty. And so at age 18, when they've essentially completed puberty, they can go to any one of the now 50. 10 years ago, there were six gender clinics. Now there are 50 in the United States. And many of them are operating under this informed consent model where essentially um, it's, it's a misnomer. It's, it's a falsity. It's not informed consent. Uh, but uh, they present uh, uh, and many times do not uh, know psychological evaluation is required. Uh, you simply read a pamphlet describing the uh, uh, risks and benefits of testosterone therapy. You sign your name and um, within an hour or two, you have testosterone. And then they so, go through the menopause or? So, yeah, so it's interesting. So testosterone uh, at high dosages will shut off estrogen production in, it, it'll shut off any sex hormone production in whoever is taking it. So if an older man, for example, has low testosterone, which would be the typical situation where testosterone is prescribed, let's say he's making 25% normal testosterone levels. If we give him testosterone, his own production will shut off completely. This is the way the endocrine system works. Wow. Now, if we give, if we give testosterone, um, if testosterone is given to uh, a woman in male level dosages, which are approximately, so normal uh, female level of testosterone would be perhaps 20 to 40 and a normal male level would be 400 to 800. So we're talking, um, what, what's the math there? 10 to 40 <laughs> times, right? So yeah. a, a significant, uh, a very high dosage of testosterone to a woman. Uh, not only will that testosterone circulate in her blood and then bind to any cells that have testosterone receptors. So if it's a hair follicle, it will stimulate that receptor and then stimulate that hair follicle to, to grow and uh, grow a thicker hair, for example. Mm. Um, muscle will increase in mass. Uh, the uh, you know the voice box will enlarge in, and, and the voice will or enlarge, and the, uh, uh, the voice will deepen. Oftentimes, within three to six months of initiating testosterone, that's an irreversible effect. Uh, you'll see uh, sometimes changes in facial structure itself, so thickening of of uh, bone uh, on the forehead and jaw. Um, kind of traditional masculinizing features. Yeah. Uh, scalp hair will be lost. So body hair growth increases, scalp hair uh, can decrease, the skin becomes oily, acne 
these are all impacts of testosterone binding to um, tissues. Uh, and then in addition, that testosterone um, will signal back to the brain uh, and shut off the signaling that would cause normal estrogen production. Right. So the testosterone itself is shutting off estrogen production. Now, in some situations, the dose of testosterone is not adequate to do that. And so some women will have both some circulating estrogen and very high levels of testosterone as a consequence of the injections or the gel. Uh, when the estrogen levels drop below a certain level, that is what uh, induces the classic menopausal symptoms. And that will occur in a woman of, uh, so any woman who has, uh, has gone through the, gone through puberty essentially, and has estrogen circulating in her blood, um, when that estrogen is withdrawn, and that can happen for a variety of reasons, menopause, uh, the ovaries are removed surgically, or a drug, including testosterone, that will induce menopausal symptoms. And what are the risks? Because I've had friends who've got chronic endometriosis who have mm -hmm. really bad pain every month and they're in their early 30s and doctors in this country basically say, no, you can't have a hysterectomy. You can't, we're not going to put you through the menopause. This is yeah. really bad for your body. So what, what does it do to the young? Well, what does it do to any age body, but specifically to, to young bodies? So uh, estrogen withdrawal, essentially, so menopause. Yeah. Yeah, so again, this is something that's, I would say, not fully understood in terms of especially brain function. Uh, so we know that uh, neurons um, uh, function. Uh, they, uh, estrogen essentially facilitates neuronal uh, communication. Right. Um, so uh, when estrogen is withdrawn, uh, many women will describe uh, difficulty sleeping, difficulty concentrating, uh, perhaps changes in mood. Um, there will be skin changes, hair changes, nail changes, any tissue that is used to uh, seeing estrogen uh, will uh, um, will change essentially. Um, bone density will go down. Um, so there, so there's a, a variety of, of uh, uh, changes that occur when estrogen levels drop. Mm. I certainly know uh, that most women aren't excited about the menopause, so it can't be a great thing. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's a significant change. I mean, these estrogen levels might be somewhere between 100 and 300. Uh, and after menopause, they go down to you know, less than 30. So it's a significant uh, drop. Yeah. And so then the, the boys trying to uh, be seen as girls, their faces are already heavy. So that's why we see sometimes men having face feminization surgery. But looking at, are the risks as bad for teenage boys taking estrogen as teenage girls taking testosterone? Or is it just, a, it's just awful, full stop? Well, so this is, again, something that's really, uh, I would say, unknown. So I'll tell you what we okay. do know. So we know that men who take estrogen uh, develop blood clots. So estrogen is, um, it, it increases the amount of uh, what are called clotting factors from the liver. 
This is why one of the main risks of oral contraceptives in women who take them, you know, we always warn women about the risk of blood clots. Yeah. This, this, this is just well known. So we know that men who take estrogen develop blood clots and strokes at roughly three times the normal rate. And we know that women who take testosterone, uh, they have four to five times the odds of developing heart disease. Now, again, there's so little quality data in this area that I can't say for sure based on studies that, okay, uh, woman A taking X dosage of testosterone, here is the uh, increased risk of uh, heart disease, but it's certainly known uh, and it's certainly one of the things that women are consented to, quote unquote, when they initiate testosterone. I think one of the falsehoods, or at least something that's being told to these women that is that is not known and maybe frankly untrue, many times they're told that when they start testosterone, their risk of heart disease will now be the same as a man's. Uh, but some of the initial uh, data that we have shows that their risk of heart disease is even now higher than a man. So not only higher than a woman not taking testosterone, but also higher than a man with male appropriate levels of testosterone. So again, another uh, known risk, we don't know how risky. Um, uh, and certainly, again, certainties being told to vulnerable individuals when there is no, the, the quality of data to support statements like that doesn't exist. I mean, common sense, look, I'm no medic quite clearly <laughs> on my level of conversation, but it doesn't make, it makes perfect sense to me that if you, as a woman, built as a woman from the moment of conception and with my lovely, super strong um, XX chromosomes, that introducing something that is designed for men and has evolved through millennia in a male body and putting that into my body, it stands to reason that it's going to mess up my body somewhat. Uh, no, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, you're absolutely intuitively, your intuition is backed up 100% by medical fact. So, so how are I we think doing it? Why are we yeah. doing it? Yeah, and that's that's the question of the day. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. So, so sometimes women will develop tumors that tumors of the ovaries or adrenals that overproduce testosterone, and they will begin to masculinize. They will present to a clinician's office with um, facial hair growth, scalp hair loss, deepening of the voice, um, something called clitoromegaly. The clitoris will begin to enlarge. So, kind of classic. Uh, masculinizing effects of testosterone and endocrinologists we're in a in a race to find that tumor and remove it because we know of the increased risk of heart disease associated with those tumors mm. because of the increased testosterone so again in any other situation an elevated testosterone level in a woman into the male range it's it's essentially an emergency. I mean, we, we rapidly scan the body. We're, we're sending them to a surgeon. We're taking this extremely seriously because of this risk of heart attack uh, that, that is associated with elevated testosterone levels. And then in addition to all the other physical changes that are occurring. So yeah. um, giving testosterone to women in male dosages 
is one of the worst possible ideas I could imagine. I was talking to Susan Evans, who you mm -hmm. know, um, yep. and she was talking about years ago, you'd have about 100 people through the gender identity services. Uh, and I said to her, well, what happened to those? What happened to those kids? You know, if, if they didn't take, if they took, say, puberty blockers or you didn't give them till they were 16 anyway back then, uh, what happened to those children? Did they transition? And her answer was that they have no idea what happened to those children because there's no follow-up. Yeah, no, it, I mean, that's that a tragedy in and of itself. Yeah, it's it's the the quality of data and the loss to follow up, even when they try to follow um, folks long term, the loss to follow up has been astonishing. But yeah, the fact that there is no good long term quality data and the the good quality, the better quality data that we have in terms of life expectancy and suicide risk and et cetera, et cetera, shows it's not, it's not good. No. Uh, so when we look, you know, the, the centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, uh, in 2016, under the previous administration, uh, looked at the uh, surgical data, uh, you know, uh, so-called gender reassignment surgery, and uh, their conclusion after looking through um, I forget how many they reviewed. It was, I think, almost 40 papers or so. They could not come to a conclusion that these interventions improved the psychological uh, well-being of individuals who had undergone these interventions. And so mm. uh, to apply those same interventions or to initiate uh, minors, children on a pathway that could culminate in interventions that have no proven benefit and lots of risks, uh, is uh, it defies the ethical practice of medicine. Yeah. Well, there's uh, quite a few uh, so-called trans men online and uh, in the UK, I'm sure there are loads in America as well, but the ones I've seen in the UK, they celebrate testosterone because they feel absolutely euphoric, which I understand is a side effect of, side effect of testosterone in the short term. Mm -hmm. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, testosterone is a psychoactive drug. I mean, hormones are psychoactive. Uh, mm. you know, part of their function is is uh, on on brain function. Uh, so, um, you know, testosterone certainly, in the short term, in terms of psychological well-being, may in some women provide benefit. But again, we don't know. So, so those types of studies haven't been done where we can say, you know, maybe it's only twenty-five percent of women. And 75% may feel worse. It may worsen their dysphoria. Uh, so the, those types of studies uh, um, aren't aren't clear in terms of uh, benefits. Even puberty blockers. Uh, Michael Biggs did some analysis um, out of Tavistock, and he uh, he found that a significant number of girls who were started on puberty blockers. Uh, did worse psychologically. Yeah. Um, so again, it kind of again comes back to this theme of known risks without clear benefit. Uh, certainly in the long term, without any uh, clear long term benefit. So, what what are we doing exactly? Well, I, 
I have some choice words there, but I'll, I won't use them. Going back to the puberty thing, because something that I've always asserted without any basis, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm right, is that if you don't go through puberty and you don't get the brain sending things all around your body, that you don't go through any sexual development, mm -hmm. um, does that make any difference if you then take cross-sex hormones at 12? Do you get the other puberty and sexual development? Or is that another one of the many unknowns? Yeah, so no, I think one of the, one of the known um, issues with puberty blockade is um, basically uh, you're halting genitalia development as well. Uh, and so, you know, that individual is going to have immature genitalia. Um, and the concern there is long-term sexual dysfunction. Um, even if, you know, cross-sex hormones are administered and that person were to undergo, um, you know, gender reassignment surgery, uh, the, uh, there's a significant concern about sexual dysfunction because of the uh, halting of normal uh, genital um, formation, for sure. Right. And do they, obviously, teenagers suddenly switch on to the whole uh, sex thing. Um, the stereotype is that boys are a lot worse during that, that stage of adolescence. Does that also, is, I'm assuming that's also stopped. I, I'm, I'm saying it aloud because I don't want it to be yeah. implied, I want it to be explicit. Yeah, sure. No, so, so kind of the, the psychological term is, is uh, or the I think adolescent development term is age appropriate social sexual interactions. Right. So, so, right. So there's a, and I'm not correcting you, you, you said it fine, but this is the, the term that we use. Uh, so essentially what that means is, yes, if you, if you give puberty blockers to a 12 year old girl and her peers progress through puberty over the next two to three years, um, you know, two years later, when she's 14 years old, she's still in a 12 year old body and still has a 12 year old brain essentially. So she is, uh, and this has been remarked by some clinicians in the field, is that, uh, and it makes perfect sense, if you halt the developmental process, which by the way, it's important to state, um, the pubertal process helps to resolve gender dysphoria in an overwhelming number of cases. And, you know, depending upon the study, anywhere between 60 to 98%. Uh, I'm sorry, 88%. And there might actually be a small study up into the high 90s, but the average that's often quoted is 80 to 85% of children with gender dysphoria who are permitted, right, to go through normal puberty will have resolution of their gender dysphoria, likely as a consequence of what you're describing, which is normal, age-appropriate, social sexual interaction that helps them actually come to terms with who they are who they like and who they're going to be if you halt that process it makes uh it, it becomes very understandable why the majority of those kids who are started on puberty blockers go on to cross-sex hormones they've not actually had a chance to uh discover themselves through the natural process of yeah. pubertal development. Because our bodies, are, 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 I think what we discover through that period of our lives is that 
our bodies are quite useful you know even if we don't always like the way they look they we see the we see the use of them as we sort of approach adulthood and it all fits in and yeah i think i think that i think that developmental process is is unique to every individual and and they deserve to have it mm. to to go through that process to discover who they are yeah um and uh, yes it's you know often a rejection of of the physical body or a perception of how you know how certain the sexes are supposed to behave et cetera et cetera mm-hmm. a really false understanding of the reality of the diversity of human behavior mm. uh, that that leads to a lot of dysphoria and um, with puberty and interaction with lots of different types of people going through the similar similar types of situations um, it's it's no surprise that the majority of kids who are confused about who may think they were born in the wrong body become comfortable with their uh, yeah. with their bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, I I often talk about so I came to prominence with a woman adult human female campaign, and people say, well, how do you know you're a woman? And I said, well, it's a two way. A, I'm materially factually a woman, but I'm also I also interact with the rest of the world seeing me as a woman, as a female in this particular body, you know, I'm quite little, so that probably has a massive impact on how people perceive me. And so also what we're robbing those children of is the sort of authenticity, it's such a horrible word, I'm so sorry, but the authenticity of like inhabiting their bodies and being treated like the body that they genuinely inhabit. I couldn't state it better myself. (laughs) <laughs> I'd hope you elaborate and make me sound. <laughs> no, that's, that's <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's exactly uh, the hope, um, and I think one of the tragedies that's come out of uh, that's developed recently is that the type of psychological support or exploratory ethical exploratory therapy, psychotherapy, or uh, whatever modality of therapy um, that could help an adolescent through that process of acceptance uh, has been uh, um, essentially rejected and and worse and called conversion therapy or uh, uh, you know uh, m- many psychologists are, are frankly afraid to even admit that they would uh, pursue counseling that could help somebody uh, uh, through that uh, discovery process. So yes, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, how do you stop going insane? Well, I think you have to, you have to, you have to speak up. That's, that's been my, uh, my solution here is just to say, Hey, wait a second. Uh, I see a lot of things here that, uh, that don't make sense uh, from a biological standpoint. Um, and as a consequence of uh, concepts that, you know, you can't be born in the wrong body, for example, you, you know, you can't yeah. have a, a boy brain and a girl body. That's, it's never been medically proven. So misperceptions of, of science uh, coupled with a suppression of debate, both socially and within medical societies, it's very difficult to get uh, um, critical articles published in medical journals that, uh, that challenge this, uh, this gender identity uh, um, 
essence, basically. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as a consequence of that, uh, a great harm is being done. And we're seeing uh, uh, that, uh, you know, the evidence of that are uh, in particular women, because that's been the majority of uh, this recent wave of gender dysphoria. Women are coming forward and saying exactly that. They're saying, I was, I had gender dysphoria. My gender dysphoria was a consequence of an underlying issue that thoughtful clinicians should have investigated with me. And if they had done so, the likelihood of me pursuing these interventions that have now led to some irreversible changes would have been much lower. And I wish someone had stood up and said, here's the reality of the situation that you're in. You can't be born in the wrong body. Let's explore the sources of your gender dysphoria in a compassionate, ethical way. Mm. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah, it's a very, it's a difficult time for sure. I think it's very cult-like. I watched a, a, a girl and she's very young and she'd had phalloplasty and I think she'd had 31 corrective surgeries after this phalloplasty and still she left the hospital after about a year and then her Instagram great story was urinating standing up and she was absolutely elated and was crying with joy and I just thought I can't think of anything other than a cult that could inspire so much emotion. Essentially, you have a vulnerable individual who is distressed and anxious uh, about some facet of their biological reality or their interaction with the world, causing them Mm -hmm. significant distress for whatever reason that may be. And, you know, there's a list of reasons that would cause that distress. And then you have a social medical structure set up that is offering a quote unquote solution to this individual's distress. Uh, and every step of the way reinforcing that, okay, these, these invasive uh, um, medicines and surgeries are the only way for you to uh, feel good about yourself. And so uh, these folks uh, uh, are every step of the way, essentially that gets reinforced. Mm. And um, I think in that situation, it's hard to, certainly very difficult to see yourself out of any other, any other way. You've been told that therapy doesn't work. You've been told you've been born in the wrong body. Uh, You've been told that, you know, this medical path is the only one to happiness for you. Uh, and uh, it's it's quite a shock for many, as detransitioners have been telling us, um, kind of traumatic, actually, uh, to realize that that was uh, not true. I just can't. I think the the, the profound harm done to these um, vulnerable people is is bad enough, but the added burden of knowing that you were part of it that you made those decisions and you were part of that destruction to your own self must be absolutely psychologically crippling. Well, I, I blame the, you know, being a medical professional, I blame the medical profession. So I, I think physicians have an obligation to stand the line and say, 
even if it's an unpopular thing to say, if it's mm. medically accurate, you know, when you have a distressed individual in front of you, look, I, I can't tell you that these interventions will help you. They've not been shown to help you. Uh, and so you certainly can go find physicians who will provide you these medications and do these surgeries. But when you look at the data, there's, there's no convincing evidence that these things will improve uh, overall your psychological state of well-being, relieve your anxiety mm. and depression. Um, uh, and so um, therefore, uh, we'd better take a hard look at some non uh, non-invasive options. Uh, but mm. when faced with a patient who's been told by peers, teachers, other providers and the culture at large that the only intervention is is this one i i don't fault the patient for uh desperately looking for relief from their distress yeah and then when you have someone with degrees on the wall and a white coat who comes in promising relief uh, most reasonable, most, most people would say, yes, please, please relieve this feeling of distress that I have. Mm. The reality is those, uh, there's no proof that they actually do that. Mm. Just to be clear, I don't think it's the vulnerable person's fault, but I just think that if I had made those decisions, if I was sort of part of that plan, uh, of the, the demise of my own body, I think I, I would certainly find that a difficult uh, burden to well, carry. No, yeah, it's certainly distressing, um, and and that's what many have said uh, that uh, it's it's a distressing process to come to that realization. Very anxiety provoking. Mm. Um, uh, but the if there weren't physicians willing to provide puberty blockers, cross sex hormones, and surgeries. Uh, to minors and, and young, you know, youth who are distressed. Um, I mean, I think ultimately the, again, I'm biased because I'm a, I'm a medical professional. I think we, it's on us to mm. help distressed people and not push them down roads or offer interventions that don't have proven benefit. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I blame the medical profession also, <laughs> quite roundly, and I've never been I too your, forgiving. I see your point then, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, um, I'm not too forgiving of people that go along with that. I just, even in, a, even in a school, even in a staff room where they're expected to teach this nonsense, I just think if you can't say no for the good of those children that you teach or for the good of the patients that you treat, then you shouldn't be in that profession because you're, you don't, you're not responsible enough. Yeah, I think if you're in a position of uh, uh, power, so to speak, uh, or, uh, you know, a power differential, um, it's your duty and obligation to tell the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially when you know, especially when you know what the truth is, and the truth isn't just oh, you, you may earn $5,000 less next year. The truth is you may never have a sex life. You may never have a fully functioning uh, body. I mean, those, 
those harms are profound. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are others. There are others speaking out as well. Um, mm. uh, you know, Carl Hennigan in the UK. Um, yeah. Uh, and Chris Gilberg, uh, he's a, an expert in autism in Sweden, and both have used quite strong statements about uh, um, what's occurring. Essentially, you know, this is an unregulated experiment on children, uh, perhaps one of the greatest medical scandals of, of uh, all time and certainly the modern medical era. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's it's not a good situation. Mm. Well, Sweden had a nice spell of eugenics in the sort of 80s. And uh, where they were. No, just... it's it's happened. It's happened before, where medical interventions have been, uh, you know, uh, the benefits have been, you know, thalidomide, uh, the opiate epidemic yeah. that ravaged yeah. United States in particular. Uh, uh, you know, well-intentioned initially interventions that did not have data to support them uh, resulted in catastrophic consequences. So my final question: um, Over here in the UK, we are very lucky, uh, just depending on your politics that we have a national health service. And because of that, we have very good government control over it. I use those, those potentially loosely, given what's happened at the Tavistock. So we just need to, we just need to um, sever that flow uh, of government, okay, and we could stop all this. And I think the government maybe have an appetite to do it now. Do you think, A, do you think that will impact the states if we do it? Do you think it will make any dent in what's happening over in the United States? And B, if not, what do you think it's going to take? So I think it will. I think, uh, you know, I think uh, people will pay attention, uh, both medical professionals and uh, the general public. If the NHS says essentially, and we've reviewed this data and there's not, there's not evidence to support these interventions. And so we're going to hold off on them and uh, minors, uh, that, that would, uh, I think catch a lot of people's attention. Uh, would it alter the, uh, clinicians who are fanatical in their approach? Um, probably not. Uh, but, um, uh, eventually, uh, once enough evidence comes out, or enough people are willing to say out loud that there's a lack of evidence, uh, questions will start to be raised about what are we doing, the ethics of this. Uh, you know, uh, you'll start to see um, oversight committees formed and ethical boards, and that'll be the first step essentially to uh, reining in uh, really this unregulated practice that's occurring here in the States. Okay. Well, let's hope that the the British government start this this uh, yeah. ball rolling on on stopping the what I see is the profound abuse of children's body through medicine. Um, and on that note, thank you very much for joining yeah, me. Well, it's been a pleasure. No. Thank you. No, of course. As always, thanks for listening. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.